George Robertson was the 10th Secretary General of NATO, and he was in that post on 9-11. George Robertson, who taught you history? Uh, I, I actually didn't study history even at school. Um, I um, had a binary choice between uh, studying geography or history, and geography was easier, so I took geography. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, but then, you know, towards the end of, of my secondary education, I decided to do an, an O grade, uh, which they called them in Scotland in history. And a man called Archie Blair was just brilliant. Uh, and uh, he gave me a, a lasting appreciation of the subject of history and, uh, and, and what it involved. And uh, I, I credit him with a lot of what I've gained uh, since then. And do you feel, as um, when you were Secretary General of NATO in particular, that a sense of history was an important element of um, of your job? You're, you're really crowded in by history. Um, you're sitting at the desk of the Secretary General of NATO. Um, uh, you, it's, it's quite amazing. You know, you, I, I sat there occasionally thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, who sat around this table before. It's a, it was a breeze block building uh, constructed very quickly on, on the model of a hospital because, of course, uh, Charles de Gaulle had ejected NATO from its rather palatial headquarters in Paris and the Belgians offered hospitality. So we were living in a building which, had it not been covered by the Ottawa Convention on Diplomacy, would have been condemned by the fire authorities. Um, but <laughs> But, but, but my office was actually quite, quite nice. But I did wonder why I was there. And you, know, you thought about all of the individuals who'd sat around that table at the same time. So, yeah, you're, 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 you're there both with long-term history. Manfred Werner died as, uh, as Secretary General of NATO during the Bosnian War. In fact, he had to be carried at one point into the North Atlantic Council um, you're desperately ill in order to chair one of the key the key meetings, um, but also very recent history because uh, Kosovo and Bosnia had not long happened, um, and we were trying to learn some of the lessons from that. Well, and also I suppose uh, Kosovo and uh, Bosnia were both wars that, uh, in a way, sprung up because of history and historical tensions. So, did, did you have to sort of mug up on the on the past of those places to understand why Balkan um, internecine hatreds could uh, break out into violence. Absolutely, um, it was it was hugely important because, of course, I'd come from the Ministry of Defence in London as Secretary of State, where, where I actually sat at Churchill's desk, sitting in Churchill's chair, uh, with Churchill's chaise long on the other side of the room where he used to go to sleep. Uh, Michael Heseltine had rescued that furniture from some obscure storage point. Um, so you were please living. Tell me, with please his... tell me you had the occasional nap on it, uh, George. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't possibly uh, admit that uh, at, the, at this stage. <laughs> but the, the days were very long, and I, I'm quite I'm quite accomplished at being able to sleep for five minutes uh, at a time, uh, though though not when other people are speaking. I uh, I, his, I uh, emphasize. At this point, so yes, you know, the, the, I was involved very intimately in the Balkan embroglio, uh, and I had to, to read it. You know, one of the books I read was Fitzroy MacLean's 
uh, Eastern Approaches, uh, which is one of the best books on the Balkans. And Fitzroy MacLean, I knew, I'd met a couple of occasions. And indeed, uh, when I worked on a, a relations farm in Argyll, Fitzroy MacLean's estate, marched was neighbor, uh, neighbors of my, of my uncles. Um, so yeah, you, you had to know the history. And then when Kosovo came along and I was uh, at the Ministry of Defense and, and deeply involved at that time, I needed to know how all of this had started, the field of Blackburns and uh, Milosevic's uh, uh, endless uh, plumbing of the historical depths in order to, uh, to justify the genocide he was involved in. Your um, election to Parliament, to Hamilton South in the by-election of 1978, was one of my earliest political memories. Uh, I was 15 at the time and I, and I remember it happening. Uh, it seemed at the time to um, stop the rise of uh, Scottish nationalism, of the, of the SNP. Uh, you've always been a very firm unionist, of course, and you were secretary, shadow secretary of state for Scotland from 1993 to 97. Where do you think historically we are now with Scottish uh, nationalism? My fear is about Scottish nationalism, um, a bit like... Uh, um, the royalists felt with Charles I in that uh, we need to win every battle, but they only need to win once. Yes, that's very true, especially since David Cameron uh, in, in a, a magnificent uh, negotiation where he gave away everything, um, <laughs> agreed to um, Scotland becoming independent if they got one single vote more than the 50%. A quite remarkable concession at the time and, and something that would never have been conceded anywhere else in the in the world a huge uh, uh, constitutional earthquake based on on a majority of one single vote out of uh, the three or three million that would have that would have been cast where are we now I think we're we're still close to the edge of the cliff um, but we've taken two or three steps back from it um, I think that uh, there is an entrenched view by about 30% of the Scottish population that will believe in independence irrespective of the facts. Um, and there's another 30% you know, who will never concede it at all. And there is in the middle a fluctuating uh, group of people who are yet to be persuaded. But the present turmoil of the Scottish National Party and the forces of independence has given you know, some breathing space for the argument to, to be put again. In 1997, you became Secretary of State for Defence uh, in the Blair government, and you instituted the 1998 Strategic Defence Review. Um, tell us about the Joint Rapid Reaction Force that was brought into existence as a result of that. Um, it was uh, created by that review, and it saw deployments in Sierra Leone and Macedonia and Afghanistan, uh, and elsewhere, what um, is your uh, what's your your sense of that? You are you're the sort of the father of that, aren't you? Well, uh, the review was, and um, I've always said that if the if the 1998 review had been a success, it would be known as the SDR 1998, and if it had been a failure, it would have been called the Robertson Review. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I'm, I'm very pleased to say that it's not referred to as the Robertson Review. And of course, the Joint Rapid Reaction Force 
um, was just one of many you know, very dramatic uh, uh, recommendations that were implemented as a consequence of that. The other ones, of course, being the, I mean, the other major ones being the aircraft carriers, the Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers that are now in existence. Well, yeah, that's right. And and, and it's like the Joint Rapid Reaction Force was about force projection, because at that time, that is what we we said, there was a satirical programme used to make mockery of my statement that, you know, we have to, we have to, uh, wait for to go to the war rather than waiting for the war to come to us, um, um, and and it, it, that was the basis on which on which it was all done. But you know, a joint rapid reaction force sounds radical, and yet why on earth would it sound radical? But it was radical because up until then, um, the Army, Navy, and the Air and the Air Force basically did their own things. The idea of jointly doing things together was relatively novel. You know, the the, the task force to the Falklands, you know, that you previously mentioned, uh, was led by the Navy, despite the fact that the recovery of the Falklands took place with the the Army. So one of the services had to take a lead. And, and organize basically the expedition. So the, the whole concept of the permanent joint headquarters at Northwood was, you know, which came before me was radical. And so was the joint rapid reaction force. And yet it, it seems puzzling that it should have been seen as radical when it seems so self-evidently to be the way in which things should be done. And these magnificent aircraft carriers, which a quarter of a century later are in existence, one of them seems to constantly be uh, uh, have problems. But uh, but nonetheless, you know, in terms of the concept of them, they they allow Britain to project power pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, those were uh, those were also um, the brainchild of that strategic review, weren't they? They were, because we were talking about power projection, but we were also talking about the ability to be flexible. So aircraft carriers can have planes. They're, they're, they're basically floating in mobile uh, runways. They can carry uh, helicopters. Uh, they can carry troops. They can also be basically mobile headquarters for any operation that is is going to be um, required in conflict situations. And, you know, people sort of ridicule them now and say they're giant white elephants and, you know, you, they can be taken out with one missile and the rest of it. But if they're so outdated as a concept, why are the Chinese building so many of them? Why do the Americans rely on carrier battle groups to, to effectively carry American influence into various parts of the globe. Um, so they, they still have a big role to play. I hope that the HMS Prince of Wales manages to get its design problems sorted out because um, it's a bit of an embarrassment at the moment. But when the two aircraft carriers are there, it, they will be very significant assets uh, for the United Kingdom. You mentioned uh, Chinese aircraft carriers, and you're right, they are building them at a terrifying rate, aren't they? The, uh, the largest amount of money ever spent uh, in, uh, in history on, um, on rearmament, uh, we heard just the other day. It's, um, it's a nerve-wracking 
um, concept, isn't it, that the Chinese Communist Party also want to project power anywhere else in the world? Well, they do, and they do it um, in an organised way. Um, you know, they've got a concept of strategy, overall national strategy, that we seem to have lost, um, and it's long term. So it's not just building aircraft carriers, it's not just militarising tiny atolls in the South China Sea, it's the Belt and Road policy, which extends diplomatic and commercial influence into uh, large numbers of countries in the world. It's the domination of the cyber world. Um, the select committee I'm on in the House of Lords at the present moment is looking at the Arctic. Um, and uh, of course, China is using the reliance on them by the, the, by the Russians to get access to that northern polar route, which will have a huge uh, beneficial effect on China by giving it a route uh, to the west that it doesn't have to go around the Cape of uh, the, the, around uh, South Africa um, and the Suez Canal. So you know uh, the Chinese policy is one of long-term strategic thinking, uh, and we need to be aware of it and and plan accordingly. I fear we I fear we're way behind the curve on that at the moment. In 1999, you became the tenth Secretary General of NATO. Uh, leading it until 2003. Um, do you ever think about what might have happened if NATO hadn't been founded back in the April of 1949, those giants that came around the, the table and created this, uh, in, many, in many ways, the most successful defensive military alliance in history? What if, if that actually hadn't happened? What if the Americans hadn't been that engaged? What if the, uh, um, the sheer sort of statesmanship hadn't existed back in 1949? Well, I often rehearse that very question um, in a number of speeches that I made when I was at, at NATO. And the answer to the question is we would be trying to create it and probably failing. Uh, we would have wanted it deeply um, uh, because uh, you would have wanted to have at least an informal alliance between the United States and the European countries, which would have allowed America to be engaged in Western security and would have multiplied um, the security of the United States. Um, but I read the debates in the Senate in 1949, when they debated especially Article 5, and the strength of feeling that there was by the Americans at that time, that this was, as one of them said, these Europeans will get themselves into another war and expect us to fight it for them. They were very reluctant to actually do it then. How much more reluctant would they be now to endorse a treaty that said an attack on Luxembourg is to be seen as an attack on the United States of America? So it's, it's, a, it's an invaluable invention a remarkable one, and, and one in which we base our, our collective and indeed our own national security as well. Let's talk about one of the worst attacks on the United States of America in history. You were Secretary General um, at the time of 9-11. Um, what are your memories of that, of that particular day? Well, like so many other people, uh, we were taken aback. I heard about it at a meeting of ambassadors. 
which was interrupted unprecedentedly with the news that something grave had happened uh, in New York. We went back to NATO headquarters and I stood like everybody else watching the television pictures and then became conscious that, of course, you know, we weren't just spectators, you know, we were players. Um, you know, we were running NATO, you know, the, the collective security alliance in America had been attacked. Not only that, we were on, on the flight path of Zaventem Airport, Belgium's national airport. And at that time, we didn't know whether there were more airliners in the sky going to be used in the way that the terrorists used them in New York. Um, so we had to get down to it. We had to we, we had to realize we were we weren't just watching, you know. We had to be participants, and that's when we uh, started thinking about the idea that perhaps Article Five, that famous self-defense clause, might be relevant uh, in this situation. Uh, now that wasn't you know wasn't automatically apparent to everybody in the room. I argued that that is what it had been intended for. Other people said, no, it was intended for a Soviet attack on the West and not, you know, something in response to a terrorist uh, uh, attack or, uh, you know, civilian airliners being used against big buildings in New York. But, you know, we... Essentially, you were having a historical discussion. You were having a debate about, about history, about what the founders were considering, considering back in 1949. Absolutely. No, we were we were rooted in that. And a lot of people were, were reading Article 5 for the first time. You know, we knew about it. You know, everybody knew what it was. But most people hadn't actually read how clever it had been constructed in order to get the American Senate to, uh, to endorse the treaty at, uh, at, that, at that time. So, yes, we were uh, we were embroiled in it. And of course, the other side of the Atlantic, we were talking to people to whom it, you know, it seemed very strange. You know, I said to Colin Powell, you know, Article 5, and he said, yeah, yeah, I know what Article 5 is. Why are you mentioning it? And I said, you've been attacked. I said, ah, ah. So, yeah, we were living through a moment of uh, historical context and yet relating it uh, to something that was very, very current. And how do you think history will view the Western response to that atrocity? I, uh, well, when I read out the statement, because it was a statement by the North Atlantic Council, which had been arrived at, I must say, after you know a lot of deliberation and um, quite a bit of... You were president of, of the North Atlantic Council as well as of NATO, weren't you? Yep. Can you just remind the, um, our listeners the difference? Between them, well, the, 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 it's an interesting distinction because I was the tenth Secretary General of NATO and the Chairman of the North Atlantic Council. Unlike the United Nations, NATO decided to make the Secretary General Chairman of the the NATO Council, the North Atlantic Council, which gave gives the Secretary General considerable influence. Where the Secretary General of the United Nations is uh, <coughs> is basically subject to the whims. Of the rotating a uh, presidency of the uh, of, of the Security Council, so I'm I, so I am both head of the organisation and I'm also chairman of the uh, the College of Ambassadors uh, who are permanent representatives to, to to NATO. So in this situation, 
you have we had to draw up a draft agreement and then sell it to the other uh, 18 uh, ambassadors around the table who all had to go to 18 governments back home, some of whom were, uh, you know, a bit reluctant, you know, and wanted more time to think about it, you know. So I had to use pretty well all the uh, all the political skills I've acquired over the years, basically, to uh, cajole, bully, persuade, sell the idea to a number of uh, a number of countries, and eventually, you know, well, uh, in one case, I spoke to the whole cabinet through the foreign minister's mobile phone in order to get over uh, the point. Now, of course, the following day, everybody thought it was their idea and it was by and large the best idea anybody had ever thought of because it, 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 it came at a moment where America valued that tangible uh, signal of solidarity with them at a time when they had been under attack for the first time since Pearl Harbor. You've met uh, President Putin nine times um, in the uh, in the course of your career. What's he like? Well, what he was like when I met him was interesting, sober, quiet, a um, little bit sinister, but actually quite open at times. You know, I can tell jokes uh, told by Vladimir Putin, which is not somebody anybody can do now. Um, and maybe if they did, they would end up in jail. Um, but I good jokes. I, thought, I mean, funny jokes. He's got a sense of humour, has he? Well, he did. Yeah. Well, when we launched the NATO Russia Council um, uh, at the end of the tour de table, each each of the presidents and prime ministers had three minutes. Um, so they all did their three minutes, and I was ready to wind up the the session uh, when he put his hands up, his hand up, and wanted the floor. So. I, I must say I was taken aback because I thought if he gets another speech, they'll all want another speech. Anyway, he he said, um, I just wanted to say, Mr. Secretary General, that you've told us that you are the chairman of the North Atlantic Council um, and you're also the chairman of the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council. And now you are the chairman of the uh, uh, NATO-Russia Council. Can I suggest that NATO headquarters might be renamed the the House of Councils. Now, <laughs> the joke here is that the Russian word for councils is Soviets. So the interpreters <laughs> were telling people around the table that Putin was saying, we'll call NATO headquarters the House of Soviets. You know, and I saw that, <laughs> I saw the uh, Polish delegation looking horrified. So I took my gavel and said, I pronounced that was a joke, you know, and, uh, and, it, and it was. So um, anyway, he's not he's not telling any jokes now. So this is a man who was by and large very controlled. He was he was calm, very sober, serious most of the time, um, and and uh, and yet there were flashes of emotion in some of the sessions that I had with him, which showed that there was something in him that was actually quite passionate and not as controlled as he often showed in public. Um, and you've said that given different statesmanship, Russia, Russia might even have joined um, NATO. How, how could uh, the West have gone about trying to, to draw Russia into NATO? Is that ever really a, a possibility, do you think? I often, I often speculate on that, and I may, may even be writing about it in the next few weeks. 
to say, was there a moment in time where his ambition was to be around that table as an equal? Not the Eto Russia table, but the North Atlantic Council table. I don't know, and, and, and maybe the answer is no. He never ever thought of that at all. But there was an opportunity at that time for sucking him in. You know, in, in the way, let, 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 let's use the other historical um, comparison. What, what the French decided to do with the Germans uh, and, the, and the European Union, you know, they were determined that Germany was never going to do to France what it did twice in the 20th century. And therefore, what you did was you created an, organi an organism like the European Union or the European Community and you tied Germany in with iron hoops into that spider's web of relationships, committees, debates, discussions, so that they would never again sort of feel that they were going to dominate the rest of Europe. Now, we might have been able to do that with Russia, with under, under Putin. He could have made that decision. He said to me at the first meeting, I want Russia to be part of Western Europe. I believe that is our destiny. And he said, he waved down the table and said, these guys don't agree with me, but that is what I want to achieve. So there may have been a moment at that point where we might have been able to grab hold of him as part of that you know, Western Europe concept. Who knows? And he's, of course, completely turned his back on that um, now, or at least ever since um, uh, February 2022, um, which was in, a, in part... Um, the result of his view of history and Ukraine's place uh, in the Russian sphere, essentially. Um, I mean, he he obviously does have, and he wrote that 6,500-word article about um, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. He does have a powerful historical sense that Ukraine doesn't, doesn't deserve independence, isn't genuinely independent and, and can't be independent, even though it was independent for 30 years before he invaded. Um, how important do you think history and the sense of the past is to Putin? Well, it is, but it's his version of history. You know, that's the, 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 the problem. You know, there's the old thing they said about Northern Ireland, you know, that you can respect history, you don't have to live in it. Um, and I think that Putin has now decided his version of history and he wants to live in it. You know, he stood beside me on the 28th of May 2002, and I've got the transcript of the press conference when he said explicitly, he said, Ukraine is a sovereign independent nation state and it will make its own decisions about security. So that's what he said in, in 2002. But then during the pandemic, it appears that he sort of retreated not in, only into the isolation of the Dasha, but in, into, into his version of the history of Russia and its greatness. So he wasn't any longer looking for equality around the North Atlantic Council table. He was looking for equality with the United States of America and building a historical delusion in order to justify what he was going to brutally do uh, to, to, to the next door, the next door country. And I think a lot of it had to do with psychology and to do with the pandemic and to do with being on his own and being remote and, 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 and crucially not being subject 
to any kind of challenge. You know, and that, and that you know, you, you mentioned the essay. Well, the, the essay, I don't think he wrote, but anyway, it, it reflected his thinking. But the speech that he recently gave to the Juma and the Federation Council, a two hour long speech, I read the translation of that. And I also watched clips of the audience. And the audience is made up of people who've got their kids at English public schools, they've got money and companies registered in London and the south of France, they've got holiday homes in the Hamptons in America. And they're sitting listening to this garbled rubbish, because it was, this, this wasn't even the, the serried historical arguments that he had in the big essay. It was a stream of consciousness of bile and hatred and emotion. And these guys listening without any animation at all must surely have been wondering whether this guy was actually seeing and whether he was leading them uh, in, in a way that respected their own particular ambitions. But dictatorships are like that, aren't they? I mean, throughout history, people have sat and sort of nodded and applauded and stood up and clapped when they know that the person who's speaking is uh, is only just the side of insane. It's a it's a well known thing in uh, dictatorships, isn't it? Well, yeah, well, that's right. But I, you know, last month I was in Bucharest in Romania, and uh, President Ceausescu, who ran a very brutal, you know, highly organised dictatorship, you know, <coughs> thought. He was safe until he took to that balcony and the crowd started to heckle up. So there are, mo there are moments in history, um, as you know better probably than I do, where it just cracks. There's just a moment at which the credibility disappears and the, and the system and, and the dictatorship cracks. Um, and another um, byproduct of this invasion, the Ukraine invasion, of course, has been for NATO, has been the um, accession of Sweden and shortly of Finland, and shortly after that, uh, um, Finland. Is there any danger to NATO to um, expand in this way, or does it make perfect sense um, that that we should have a near neighbour of Russia's like Finland as a member? That's the first thing. And secondly, Boris um, Johnson in the House of Commons the other day said that he wants Ukraine to join NATO. What, what's your feeling about that? Well, let, let's come to that next. Uh, uh, Finland, Sweden, it, the, the, you, you used an interesting word when you described it, uh, which was expanding, NATO expanding. Um, I think that's the wrong word because NATO enlarged. Because individual countries all made individual decisions. And NATO is not some giant sort of amorphous organization. A mistake that Vladimir Putin makes, it's a very tiny civil service. It's made up of sovereign independent nation states. And they're troublesome and they're, they're uh, fractious and they're difficult to corral and making getting them to make decisions you know as long and painful as a process but it's so NATO enlarged by these individual countries all deciding that they would subordinate a degree of sovereignty to this organization but never gave it up completely but it's so not going to become more un unwieldy now that we've got two more nations we're up to what is it 30 31 nations it's it's uh, it sounds pretty uh, unwieldy even before yeah well it's not it's not going to be easy to control i found that i found it uh, 
complex and, and difficult uh, with 19 countries, you know, so Stoltenberg, so Stoltenberg has got a bigger, much bigger problem dealing with it. And, and one of the things that disappears with size is the ability to debate issues. In my time, we had, you know, around the, the council table, we had genuine debates, arguments, you know, and, and some of them quite emotive. Uh, and in one case, I had to stop the debate adjourn the meeting because tempers were were flaring uh, over an exercise uh, to do with that. But um, when you've got 31, 32 countries, that's going to be more difficult. But yet, yet, they all know that it is so valuable and important for them that at the end of the day, they subordinate a lot of the individual views to the collective good. And, and that's the great, enormous success of NATO. To make a decision, you have to get consensus. Once you've got consensus, you need consensus to break that decision. Ah. An, interesting, an interesting concept most people don't sufficiently understand. You mentioned Charles de Gaulle earlier uh, on in this conversation. Of course, he broke the consensus, didn't he, uh, when he took France out of NATO. France then went back into NATO uh, with President Macron um, before the invasion of uh, of Ukraine saying that NATO was brain dead, one wondered whether or not the French were committed to um, to NATO, but uh, uh, they very obviously are. Um, but what do you feel about President Macron's seeming appeasement uh, in over China and um, and questioning whether or not uh, the West would be firm over Taiwan, for example, do you do you fear that uh, there's a um, there's a, a problem for the West with regard to France's stance? Well, France has always been an uncomfortable member of the the Western alliance, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, the French are robust. And important and a key part of it. An interesting little thing from from the his, your historian point of view. Just let me say to you, uh, it, it was it was President Sarkozy who finally took uh, France back into the military structure of NATO, uh, which is what De Gaulle had withdrawn from uh, a way back. Uh, President Chirac sort of wobbled close. NATO, but was, wasn't willing to make the final move, despite concessions made to him. Um, President Sarkozy, who was, who was a conservative, then got the, 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 basically the shadow foreign secretary, the previous, the, the socialist uh, uh, foreign minister, Hubert Ferdrin, to write a report on France and NATO membership. A, a remarkable document was produced, you know, by, by the opposition. And Sarkozy then said, right, we're going to go back into the, uh, to the military structure. Um, it, you, there's a lot to be said against Sarkozy as a president, but that was an, an act of brilliance because it sort of united both sides and France then, holus bolus, went back into the structure that they'd stayed out of for so for so long. So France can be both a unifier and a, dev a divisive force at times. And Macron at the moment knows that there's a vacuum of leadership. Britain outside of the European Union, Germany sort of finding 
a new role, Italy going through its usual sort of agonies. Um, so he's, he's, he's basically there as the leader. And that takes him in a variety of, uh, of, of, of directions. I'm not entirely sure that appeasement is the word in relation to China. I think he takes a very pragmatic view um, that is different to the United States in as much as he wants to have a relationship with China that will eventually control its more, you know, sort of uh, aggressive instincts. Um, and that, 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 I think, is why, you know, he went to, to see Xi Jinping and, and came back with that conclusion. But you have to understand that France is, is desperately wanting to be part of a club, but at the same time being a very different member of that club. And uh, to go back to the question about Boris Johnson, do you think that Ukraine could be a member of that club? I think it could eventually. The, the decision was taken in 2008, prematurely in my view, to say Ukraine and Georgia will become members of the alliance because that first of all, you know, that, that was highly upsetting to the Russians. And although that shouldn't be uh, a particular factor in our, in our consideration, it wasn't a good thing to do at the time because it also subverted the process. You know, the process of joining NATO is that you basically have to pass a number of tests, not as formalized as they are for the European Union, but you know, there's a whole series of tests like good neighborly relations, you know, compatibility of your armed forces, you know, with the NATO structures, you know, uh, sustainable democratic structures, anti-corruption laws, all of these things. So, you know, in 2008, Ukraine was nowhere near that. So it was it was premature. But once this conflict is over, and as I hope, Ukraine prevails, I think. Ukraine will then be well on the road to be a country that would fit within most of the criteria that has been laid down in the past. And on that very uh, positive note, uh, let me ask you what I ask every uh, one of my guests. Uh, firstly, what um, what's your favourite counterfactual, your historical counterfactual, George? What uh, uh, what if of history? Well, I thought about that. And you know, one, one, one bit of me was saying, what if the Kaiser had not declared a war on all shipping in the end of the First World War? Um, because it was that decision that brought the United States of America into the, into the First World War. My, my grandfather played a, a role in, in rescuing uh, some soldiers who uh, came to grief off the coast of the island of Isla in the last year of the war. Um, but but I but I reconsidered that view, and I want therefore to go to um, August the twenty seventh, seventeen seventy six, after the the Battle of Long Island, when General Howe's forces had defeated the uh, the, the the forces of General George Washington, uh, and decided, having defeated them, that they would leave. The defeated forces on the borders of the Hudson overnight and then wiped them out or wiped them up the following day. And overnight, led and organized by a man from Port Ellen in Isla, which is where I was born, 
Major General Alexander McDougall, the whole of the of the uh, uh, Revolutionary Army, nine thousand troops, all their equipment and all their food, was were taken across the River Hudson, uh, uh, aided by seamanship of some incredible quality because it's a mile wide. Um, and it was very foggy. We, we've got to, the weather yeah. was on their side as well. And it has to be uh, added as well. They were very lucky with the weather as well yeah, yeah, on that day. To, to do with that. But, uh, but it was a, remark, a remarkable uh, achievement. And, and uh, what if the fog had not been there? What if General Howe had actually decided to, to wipe them out overnight? Then history would have been very, very different. But uh, General McDougall went on eventually to be the... Uh, to be the first minister of the Marine of the United States of America and the first president of the Bank of New York. And uh, that was a boy from Port Helen in Iowa. <laughs> well, that's a very, that's a good one. And um, and what about, uh, which, which history book or, or biography are you reading at the moment? Well, uh, the one that, that I've chosen is, uh, is called Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg by uh, somebody called Francine Hirsch which was the, the Nuremberg trials from the Soviet point of view, fo focusing on the Soviet side. Absolutely fascinating because it was quite clear that Stalin wanted war crimes trials, um, but based on his idea of a trial, which was you're guilty and now we'll have the trial, and was therefore, you know, completely confounded by the idea that the Allies were going to do it properly with defence councils. But the other, the other thing that I think is remarkable in this book and relevant to what's happening in Ukraine today is that the Soviet Union, Stalin personally, wanted the crime of aggression to be one of the uh, accusations against the Nazis. That didn't exist before, you know, the, the, and, and the, the Allies were reluctant to do it. Um, but he got the crime of aggression to be one of the, the, the prosecution elements at that trial. And, and it's interesting now, you know, that we're talking about what has happened in Ukraine. Maybe that particular uh, move that they made at that time might come back to haunt them. He also wanted at the... Uh... I think it was the Potsdam conference. He said that he wanted fifty thousand Germans shot um, after the after the war, and the, the trials were going to be, as you say, extremely uh, uh, quick. And uh, and Churchill actually got up and left the meeting. He he walked out sooner than uh, than go along with the with the mass shootings. Um, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating. But what was the sorry? What was the name of the um, of the author again? Francine Hirsch. Francine Hirsch. H-I-R-S-C-H. Splendid. Thank you very much. But it's full of little bichonettes that are, that are really sort of incredibly interesting, you know, because you know, the, the, the Russians were, the, the Soviets were faced with the mountains of documents that had to be analysed as part of the evidence. And they had virtually nobody left in Russia, you know, who was a Russian, who was a German expert or a German speaker, because they all got shot. You know, during during the uh, the war, um, yeah. you know, and the chief prosecutor they put up was a guy from Ukraine, actually a Ukrainian man who'd done most of the show trials and who was completely out of his out of his depth in this concept of a fair trial. 
<laughs> I think Vishinsky was still um, was still in a key position at uh, Nuremberg as well, wasn't he? The, yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the the, the monster. Um, George Robertson, um, Lord Robertson, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Secrets of Statecraft. Been a very interesting experience for me as well, Andrew. Thank you. Fantastic. My thanks to George Roberts. Coming up on the next Secrets of Statecraft podcast is Tony Abbott, Prime Minister of Australia from 2013 to 2015. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work, or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.